This episode is brought to you by Roundtable Group, the experts on experts. We've been connecting attorneys with experts for over 25 years. Find out more at roundtablegroup.com. Thank you for joining us today at Discussions of the Roundtable Group. My name is Michelle Lux, your host, and my guest today is Charles Ehrlich. He's an expert consultant and witness in insurance matters, including claim handling, coverage, good faith, bad faith, errors and omissions, environmental, and many others. Chuck, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to the show. Okay. Well, thank you for having me. Great. Well, the focus of our podcast is what do you wish you knew the first time as an expert? And I asked you to share some stories or some insights that you've picked up along the way. Well, let me go back even before when I was an expert, when we were hiring expert. And, and I think the first thing to start worrying about is conflicts. It takes me back to a time we had a case when I was uh, working in the insurance industry and we hired an expert who was the number one expert in the whole world on this particular subject. And all of a sudden we got a motion in from the other side to disqualify us as counsel or disqualify our counsel on the basis that we had hired away their expert, the other side's expert, because this expert hadn't properly checked conflicts. So just was happy to take on our case, happy to sign on to us, and didn't ever realize that he was actually already retained by the other side. So, and I'm amazed by, as an expert now, how many lawyers will call me up and say, hi, you know, Michelle gave me your name, and here's my case, and they start talking away about their case, and I have to say, wait, stop, stop. Don't say a word. Who's involved here? Who's your client? Who's your opponent? because I might have some involvement with one of those parties. And I also have to immediately start Googling because they say, well, my client is the mom and pop insurance company. Okay, great. I've never heard about the mom and pop insurance company. No problem. Well, what if the mom and pop insurance company is actually owned by giant conglomerate Inc for which I'm doing some work or for in a case where I'm serving as an arbitrator and they're a party, which also happens. So before you even start doing anything as an expert, you really have to check conflicts or, or get yourself in a potentially disagreeable situation to say the least. A lot of times when attorneys call us, they may be hesitant to share the party names. And it's one of the things that we do require for that simple reason. You know, We need to know if there's a conflict check for our company. Your, your, your organization is very good about that. And, and not everyone is. And then it's like, right, they, they feel like you're pulling teeth if you want to find out who the parties are. But you can't dive into a case without knowing who the parties are. And then what about other aspects of um, that you might find common you know, first-time errors as an expert witness or things that are really important. Right. Well, another another big one, and this is really at the start of the case too, is confidentiality. Uh, if you have a case in federal court, you have Federal Rule 26. Federal Rule 26 protects a lot of what you might write, a lot of what counsel might write, a lot of your work product, a lot of your drafts. And a number of states have adopted Federal Rule 26 or have similar rules, but not everyone. And so what you get into is a situation where uh, the lawyer starts talking to you about the case. You start taking a lot of notes. You start putting a lot of question marks. What about this? What about that? 
that may be discoverable. And even worse, what when happens, and it happened to me once, fortunately in a Rule 26 jurisdiction, but it still distressed the lawyer. As soon as you're retained, you want to show how smart you are, right? So you write a long email about, here's what I think about the case, blah, 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 blah. Well, if it's not a Rule 26 jurisdiction, everything you said is now discoverable. And a lawyer told me about one time he had to actually get another expert. He found a great expert, but that's exactly what that expert did. Got onto the little email there and wrote up, oh yeah, here's what I think is great about the case, but I really think this is a problem and this might be a problem and that might be a problem. So the lawyer, after deciding not to jump off a bridge, had to get rid of this expert and find another one. Another story I was told was where the expert wrote very disparaging things about the law school, which the opposing expert had attended. Problem, it was the judge's law school. Again, not a Rule 26 jurisdiction, mucho embarrassment. And that, that's something I also have learned at the absolute start of any discussion with a lawyer to say, what are the confidentiality rules that govern our discussion here? And sometimes they say, oh, gosh, I hadn't thought about that. So that's really right at the beginning, conflicts and confidentiality, confidentiality, you call them two Cs. Um, then to go from C to D, the next biggest thing that I learned was, was about depositions. You have this sense that you're, a bit, you're the expert, you're writing your report, you're giving a sincere, honest opinion, and you're going to get deposed, and they're going to just basically ask you questions about the sincere, honest opinion. Well, sometimes that happens. But sometimes, and very often, the lawyer is really there just to make a bozo out of you and to get you trapped and to have a lot of trick questions and ask a lot of generalization questions that you theoretically can't disagree with that will then make you look like your opinions are dumb. So you have to prepare for deposition and you really have to prepare for deposition. You have to insist that your lawyers really take you through an adverse deposition. What were the questions that you guys would ask me if I were the opposing witness? And work through that because Otherwise, you're just not preparing yourself for the worst case situation. And I, I was thinking of Tom Brady, a uh, famous football player. You might have heard of him. When Tom Brady goes into a game, he doesn't just read the playbook. He gets there and they run plays and they have guys chasing after him, you know, trying to knock him down. And that's what a deposition is like sometimes. But it's very hard to get the lawyers to do this because the lawyers will say, oh, you've been deposed before. You know what you're saying. Here are the themes that we want to do. And back in my, my early days of practice, very early days of practice, we had an expert who was the expert on this issue of water corrosion of pipes. By the time his deposition was over, he had never heard of pipes because we hadn't prepared him for getting totally beaten up. So it's really CC and D, conflict, confidentiality, confidentiality, such a big word, and depositions.
are the things that I learned the most about and, and have really seen go wrong for people. Yeah, those are all great points and great advice for folks that are, you know, entering the business on the first time, or even like you said, it could be um, an expert that's been around a long time, but still needs to have that preparation because it is going to be a new case. So you were also a litigation attorney. You kind of hinted at that as well. Do you think that served you as far as preparing in front of the jurors and the judge as far as testifying? I think so, because, because one of the things you learn, or some people learn as litigators, some don't, is that there are sort of two groups of people in the world. There are lawyers and there are real people. And, and real people don't actually see the same world the same way that lawyers do. And so we as lawyers sometimes will go in there and, and expect more as experts that a jury or a judge is as familiar with our obscure area of the world as we are, and they are. And so one of the things that, that I learned as a lawyer was to explain where we're coming from, to educate, and I don't mean that in, in a sort of uh, superior sense, but to bring the jury or the judge into the same world that you're dealing with. And I try to do that as an expert as well, rather than just saying, there was this insurance policy. Let's assume I'm on the side working on an insurer assignment. Okay, here's the policy. Here's what happens. Here's the exclusion. Ergo, you don't pay. Well, a normal human being will look at that exclusion and say, okay, but why? Why wouldn't you pay that? So you need your expert work to lay the groundwork for telling that story. Why is this exclusion here? What's the point of it? What's the reason for it? Why does it make sense? And then the judge or the juror has a better understanding of, of where you're coming from. They may agree with you or disagree, but at least they're not just puzzling and you know, shaking their head and saying, this doesn't make any sense to me. Sure. And it's not like you can stop yourself to read the room as an expert sometimes, right? You almost need the leading question from your, your attorney to better explain it for them to recognize that too. Yeah, I, th I think that's true. And it, it's, that's a bit of a challenge sometimes to persuade the lawyers that they really do need to start out at square one from the standpoint of the jury or the judge. Why, why is this here? And they sometimes resist that because, oh, everybody knows what that is. <laughs> I, I had a lawyer say to me once, everybody knows what an excess other policy is. Well, at the time, actually, I didn't know what an excess other policy was, but I was afraid to admit it. So I said, oh, yeah, of course, everybody knows that. <laughs> <laughs> that is interesting. Well, now let's talk about report writing. Um, do you have any tips or tricks that you've learned along the way to make your report successful or um, more compelling? Well, one trap that lawyers fall into sometimes is to write a report that's really more like a legal brief. And you, you want to avoid that because you're not sitting there as a lawyer. It's the lawyer's job to write the legal brief. And you find, I just read one the other day and it's full of case citations and so forth and so on. That's not really the point. And I actually, my first, I fell a little bit into that trap. The judge was pretty nasty about the whole thing, but it was a very educational process. The, the legal briefs are the lawyer's job. My job as an expert in 
industry custom and practice is to write about industry custom and practice. Not everybody writes very well. And I guess I would say from the standpoint of a lawyer retaining an expert, it makes some sense to ask for some written product and ask around about written product. I, I had a case where actually the lawyers had three experts. My side had three experts. And when we got down to the report due date, the lawyer almost committed suicide because two of these experts just couldn't write the English language. And right. I'm, I'm You're at the saying, midnight hour. <laughs> I, I'm not saying I'm wonderful, but I can't write a coherent sentence. Sure. If you can't, you can. There's training. There are people who train people how to write expert reports. And then, of course, there are some people who let the lawyers write the expert reports, which always struck me as a little bit weird. Uh, and I, I, I actually don't know how that comes off or doesn't come off, but it seems it seems like a strange practice to me. How about retainers? Do you find those to be useful as an expert witness? Yeah, I, I do charge a retainer. I call it a designation fee so that people understand that it's not like counting against hours. It's a fee really just proves that are, are we for real, you know, particularly for a jurisdiction such as California state court where somebody can designate you as an expert and you're not writing a report, generally speaking. So I don't want to find my name just out there casually. Uh, I've gotten some resistance to it, but not a lot. And it, you know, kind of gives you that good faith and it, it protects that relationship or it indicates that you guys are serious. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. I mean, we're, we're, we're not just texting. We're actually dating. <laughs> sure. Exactly. Now, have you found that you have um, testified outside, you know, U.S. state courts and federal courts? Have you done any international cases? Uh, actually, no. I'd love to. Yeah, I, I'm still waiting for that case, which requires you know a few weeks in Paris at a luxury hotel. <laughs> that that hasn't come around yet. Well, that would be amazing. Well, I was I was curious to tie this into travel with COVID right now. Have you found that you've been referred to any cases where states are open in regards to to is it video depositions you're doing or are you going into the courts itself? No, every everything so far has been video. There is one coming up in LA. It's supposed to be live, but I don't know what Omicron's going to do that. Uh, I found the video very interesting in, in, in a lot of ways. And in some ways, uh, appalling, just sitting here looking at the screen for seven hours and, and having people beat me around the head. In, in some ways, a little bit more liberated, because if I feel like I want to take a break, I'm not looking around and worrying about, you know, being, oh gosh, you know, we just took a break half an hour ago and I'm uh, blah, blah, blah. I just, all right, well, I'd like to take a break. I, well, wait a minute. Well, no, I'd like to take a break. I'm going to put myself on mute. I'm going to take a break. Sure. You know, like you said, you probably wouldn't be able to necessarily walk out of the courtroom, right? For a seven hour briefing or an attorney's office as well. Now, what about any, any suggestions when you're on video, either from your side of things as an expert witness communicating to an attorney, is there any pros or cons to the video that could be improved upon? 
Well, one of the, one of the things that I found myself doing when I started reading the transcripts was I realized I was being a little bit more informal on video than I would be if I were in a lawyer's office or on the stand, and, and probably more informal than I should have been. Uh, so I, I'm trying to cut that out and, and not be. You used to video as being sort of chitty chatty. And so I, I'm trying to remind myself not to be chitty chatty. There's a question of, of to what extent does your, what's behind you look? What, what does your area look like? Uh, I have a friend of mine who read somewhere that you're supposed to have sort of a blank space behind you. So he has an old sheet behind him. Well, he doesn't look very professional with an old sheet behind him. And then it'd be more important to have that, that real office environment, right? Where it has the books and has maybe your credentials or, you know, just something. Yeah. Although it was, it was, it was funny because I, I have a, a set of law books that I use actually, or it's really a set of practice books that shows up in the video or used to. And the lawyer told me to take those away because otherwise they're going to start asking you questions about that set of books. Oh, that's a good point, right? And then you don't want to get caught so, into that. So I, I, I took that away and, and now I have a, a fairly bland, nice, hopefully, I mean, you're seeing some things that I actually don't really have up when I'm being deposed. Yeah. Well, that part is kind of interesting too. What about um, any technical difficulties? Have you guys experienced that yet on videos? I have not. Um you know, some people have horror stories about it. It's worked pretty much pretty okay for me. I got some sort of a, and I'm a total non-techie, I got some sort of repeater thing that I, that's outside my office that repeats the signal up from downstairs where the router is. Yes. And, and that makes the video work better for some reason. So it, it's worked fine, actually curious to hear about um, how people are adapting and if this is going to be something that we keep having for another year. Like you said, you might have a live appearance in, in LA, but <laughs> you have to move quickly if you don't, right? Yeah. Well, one other thing I did actually, I, I used to work off my laptop and then I had a, uh, what do you call it? Webcam. And then I had speakers and then I had a microphone and that, that was real awkward. And, and I was always adjusting the webcam so that I didn't look more awful than I normally look. And I finally said, the hell with all this. I went out and I bought an iMac and all of this stuff is in here. And that was real, uh, that was really worth it just to get this junk off my desk and have one integrated system. I'm not getting paid by Apple, but that was a great move for me. So do you find, Chuck, that when you are doing video depositions, let's say you're out on the West Coast and you have an East Coast attorney that's retained you, is there any issues with the time gap? A number of cases I do are on the East Coast. And so they say, all right, well, we'll start at nine o'clock, their time. And, and actually, one of my retaining counsel is, is a guy who doesn't sleep much. And so he said, oh, that's peachy. Well, that's six o'clock our time. And, and that's not peachy for me. Uh, but I only realized that he had agreed to Eastern time until the night, the night before. So there wasn't much to do about it. So yeah, it, it's a little bit awkward because for, for people back East, 
if you start at nine o'clock here, that's noon their time, that gets them into the evening. But you definitely have to pay attention to that and focus on that. And if you're an early morning person, that's great. But if, if you're a, not an early morning person or not a late afternoon person or whatever, think about that timing because otherwise they'll set it for some time and you'll all of a sudden say, oh my God, this is not working for me. Right. And it's one thing to have a meeting at six o'clock in the morning for a discussion. It's a whole other ball game if it's a, in front of a judge or if it's, you know, deposition or whatnot too. So absolutely. The, the focus level is, you know, 50 times more, or it should be 50 times more. You can't just check out and read email. Not at all. Well, thank you for all those insights and stories. Do you have anything else to share with us that um, has helped you along the way? Um, not specifically. I, you know, I think it's it's great working with with folks like you to come up with interesting and challenging assignments. So it's it's good that you guys are out there. Um, this is not easy stuff. I also do arbitration work, and as an arbitrator, you know you're on receive, and it's not quite as demanding as a expert, whether you're reviewing stuff, writing the report, being deposed, being in court, it's all pretty darn intense, but it's rewarding. Would you have seen yourself as an expert witness, you know, 20 years ago, or is this something that kind of fell into your lap? This was total happenstance. (laughs) I was, I was at a sports car event. I'm, I'm a sports car nut. I got a call from a lawyer who had previously done some work for us when I was in house. And he said, I need an expert on XYZ. How about you? My first thought was, what? And then I, my second thought was, well, yeah, I, I guess I could do that. It totally, totally just fell out of the sky. Wow. But it's also been something that you build upon, obviously, because now you've been an expert witness for how many years? I guess six or seven or eight years now. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm happy again that you shared all your stories with us. Thank you for the insights. And, um, We'll be calling you soon for some more cases. Yeah. Great. Super. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to our podcast, Discussions at Roundtable. Our show notes are available on our website, roundtablegroup.com. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening apps. 